Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 43, and our previous audio in the previous 15 verses or so, from verses 15 to 30. We talked about Jesus and the little children when he said in King James English, Suffer the little children to come unto me. We talked about the rich young ruler. Now in this audio, we're going to talk about Jesus' prediction of his death as he goes down to Jerusalem from Jericho. And then we're going to talk about blind Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus being healed on the Jericho Road. Now, I've already talked about Jesus' prediction of his own death when I discussed the parallel passage in Mark. There's also a parallel passage in Matthew. I'm going to splice my audio in of, of my Mark discussion, and that audio begins now. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Mark chapter 10. We're going to do verses 32 through 45. The context is Jesus is in his Perean ministry. He's just finished saying, suffer the little children to come unto me when the disciples rebuke the children, probably for making too much noise. And after that, the rich young ruler came up and knelt before Jesus, and Jesus said, you got to give everything up if you're going to follow me. They're in Perea, east of the Jordan. They're heading to Jerusalem. This is in the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Starting in Mark 10, verses 32 through 34, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. All right, we have two parallel versions of this story. One is in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28, and one is in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Most of the detail, however, is in Mark. We don't pick up, we pick up a little bit of stuff in Luke, not much in Matthew at all. So I'll do, I will go through Mark and I'll pop on over to Luke when I want to add a few comments that Luke adds. All right, they were on the road. That would be the disciples and Jesus. They were astonished. What were they astonished about? They were astonished about how he cheerfully and readily went on to Jerusalem to a certain death. So says John Gill and Adam Clark, and I think that's what, what he indeed meant. Because Jesus had a lot of enemies in Jerusalem. They were all trying to kill him. He had just had a brief foray into Jerusalem in which it was quite obvious the Pharisees were trying to kill him. And so he's cheerfully going right back to Jerusalem, just like he's predicted. This is the fourth time, by the way, when he says, I'm going to die and be resurrected. This is the fourth time in a relatively short period of time that he's done that. For example, Caesarea Philippi in Mark 8, Matthew 16, and Luke 9, he says, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, be crucified and resurrected. Coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, shortly thereafter the trip to Caesarea Philippi, he says the same thing. That's in Mark 9 and Matthew 17. Then, after they leave the Mount of Transfiguration and walk back down from Caesarea Philippi, back down to Galilee, probably to Capernaum, he tells them again. That's the third time, Mark 9 and Matthew 17. 
in Luke 9 has that story. So now this is the fourth time. Why did he have to tell these blockheaded disciples four times? They needed to be prepared for such an awful event, and they were not prepared for it, as the subsequent story of James and John fantasizing about what positions they were going to have in the Messianic kingdom. They didn't understand that that Messianic kingdom was not going to be established for a while, and when it was established, it was going to be a spiritual kingdom, i.e. the church. It was not going to be a political, a political military kingdom full of earthly glory. They just didn't understand, and Jesus kept telling them over and over again, look, I am going to die, disciples. Get ready for it. You think the rich young ruler had to give up everything? Guess what? You're going to have to give up everything, too. And you're going to get persecuted from synagogue to synagogue, as we'll see shortly. He tells them that shortly. Now, this idea of dying and rising again has an idea in Old Testament. This idea is an Old Testament prophecy, according to Adam Clark in Hosea 6, verse 2. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. That sounds like a messianic prediction to me prediction about Jesus coming. Now, I've given you the three times he said it, he predicted that he was going to be killed before. This idea actually is scattered all throughout the Gospels. So let me just pour it on here and give you some more examples. Luke 5:35. but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. They will fast in those days. Groom will be taken away. That's when he was explaining why his disciples didn't fast and John the Baptist's disciples did fast. The groom will be taken away. Luke 9:22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised again on the third day. This is not a parallel passage to our current passage. This is actually one of the times when he was coming down from the Mount of Transfigurations when, he, when Luke said, when, when Jesus says, let these words sink in, guys. So that's actually a repeat here. But here's another example in Luke 12, verse 50. This is not a parallel passage, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it is finished. Luke 13, verses 32 through 33. He said to them, go tell that fox, as Herod, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Well, that's a little bit veiled. But we go on to verse 33 in Luke 13. Yet I must travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm a prophet, and where do all prophets get killed? It's not possible for them to get killed anywhere but in Jerusalem, and I am going to Jerusalem. Luke 18, verse 32, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on. Luke 24, verse 7, the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. Matthew 16:21. from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples, that's, uh, that's the same thing with the Mount of Transfiguration, that's a repeat. But you see that this idea of him being killed it was scattered all throughout his teaching, and, it, and the disciples just could not grasp it. They could not understand it. Now, Matthew, when Jesus, Jesus predicts his death in Matthew, he mentions crucified, not just killed, but crucified, which, of course, means the Romans were going to be doing the execution. Jesus had a little bit of divine foreknowledge there. Oh, it might not have been. It might have been human inference because you could, since the Jews didn't have capital punishment, Jesus said, well, I'm going to get, to, I'm going to get the Pharisees and the scribes are going to get me, but it's obvious they're going to have to turn me over to the Romans to kill me, to crucify me. But imagine the effect that that little word had on the disciples. Crucify me? That's a cruel and shameful death administered to slaves and the worst criminals. How to reconcile that with the Messiah's kingdom that these disciples were expecting? Now, I told you I'd tell you approximately where Jesus was traveling. 
Now, the harmonists, of course, disagree a lot of times on the details of this. This is just a general idea. I'm, I'm mainly relying on Robertson, A.T. Robertson's harmony. All right, so he's already come down to Jerusalem, and Mark skipped all that and all that Jerusalem ministry. Then he crossed back over into Priya, and that's where he is now, and that's what, what we're talking about. Then in Matthew 19, we see he departed from, excuse me, in John 11, verse 44, it says, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. That's when he left Jerusalem, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And I think that the town is lost. They can't, they, the archaeologists don't know where it is, but it's probably a town somewhere over there in Perea. He stayed there with his disciples. And then Robertson says he left there, crossed back over the Jordan River, but didn't go to Jerusalem, but went up into Galilee and Samaria for a little bit. Went up into Samaria to the to the edge, the boundary of Galilee, the southern boundary of Galilee. So he did some ministry in Samaria, went to Jericho, then came back down to Jerusalem for Passion Week when he was crucified. So that's roughly what Jesus has done here. And we're in Perea now, the Perean ministry. Why did Jesus take the disciples aside privately to predict his passion? Here's some ideas that John Gill presents. Perhaps they would become discouraged and desert him if he said, if if he told the crowd, hey, I'm getting ready to die. Maybe all the crowd would have left. And then, of course, they would miss out on the kingdom. Maybe the crowd, once they heard that Jesus was planning on getting himself crucified by the Jews, maybe the crowd would take measures to prevent that, stop him from being crucified, and this would screw up the plan of the redemption of the whole human race from sin. But at any rate, Jesus told them privately. Now, Jesus says in Matthew, in the Matthew passage in Matthew 20, verse 18, he says he will be handed over. Now, that sounds like betrayed. I wonder if Judas realized when he heard that that he would be the betrayer. He must have been thinking about it from the back then, I, I speculate. He was handed over, all right. The Jews handed him over to the Romans. John 18, verse 35 says this, and Pilate is speaking. I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? So yes, Jesus was handed over by the, to the Jews to the Romans. And Jesus predicts also not only his death, but the mocking that went along with it, the, the scourging, the spitting, if you put the three parallel passages together, the mocking, the spitting, the scourging, and the killing, and all, he predicted it all. The spitting actually took place, he was correct, because they actually spit on him. They mocked him. How did they mock him? This is in Luke 23:11. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. Remember, Jesus was handed over to Pilate. He was also handed, he was handed over to Herod Antipas first, who was in town. And then from Herod Antipas handed him back over to Pilate. When he was with Herod, it says, The soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in a brilliant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a reed as a fake scepter in his hands. They bowed to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So, yeah, they mocked him. And then they condemned him, Mark 14:64. This is when the high priest is speaking, one of the high priests. You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they, the Sanhedrin, all condemned him to be deserving of death. So, yeah, they condemned him just like Jesus predicted in advance. Notice that Jesus specifically predicted the handing over to the chief priests and scribes. That's implied that the, that the, the, the Jewish people who arrested him handed him over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. That was the first part of his trial. Then they, the chief priests and scribes, will hand him, Jesus, over to the Gentiles. I mean, then the Romans worked him over to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. So Jesus predicted his persecution by the Jews and the Romans on his way to Jerusalem from Perea in this passage. 
And so there you have the two major divisions of the human race combining to kill Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles. When I say the Jews, I mean the scribes and the Pharisees mainly. Of course, the Sadducees were in, in on it also. I mentioned that Jesus predicted that he would be spit upon, and that was actually fulfilled too, Mark 15:19. They kept hitting, hitting him on the head with a reed and spitting on him. Getting down on the knees, they were paying him homage. That's the Roman soldiers. I forgot whether it was before Herod or for, before Pilate. That's in Mark 15:19. The Roman soldiers spit on him. Isaiah 56, 50, verse 6 predict this, predicted this. I gave my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. So Isaiah predicted it and Jesus predicted it. Now in the prediction of the condemnation and crucifixion, he also mentions after three days I'm going to rise again. Why did, he do, why did he mention that? All three of those previous predictions of his death that I gave you also included predictions of his resurrection. Why would he mention his resurrection? Because he needed to encourage and comfort his disciples. They certainly would need it. You recall that the crucifixion of Jesus, they all ran but one. Now, in Luke 18, verses 31, in parallel passage, it says, Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man. Now, remember, Son of Man is a messianic title. Jesus is calling himself the Messiah here as he's talking about getting crucified and spit on and mocked. But he was the Messiah, the Son of Man. And it says everything that is written through the prophets. Well, where is that? Well, there's lots of Messianic prophecies. I'm, we can't go through them all. But Psalm 22 is a famous one. The Isaiah, I've already quoted Isaiah 53. There's another famous passage about the suffering servant. His face was uncomely beaten. He gave his back to bear the stripes. He bore our iniquities. Zechariah 13:7 says, Sword awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will also turn my hand against the little one. So lots and lots and lots of Messianic scriptures. Jesus said it is written. He was constantly appealing to the Old Testament scriptures when he was talking about his life because he wanted to show that he fulfilled those scriptures. Just like on the road to Emmaus. Have you not read the scriptures? Luke adds... A paragraph that's not in the other parallel passages, so we'll read that. Luke 18:34 says this, They understood none of these things. Well, that's not surprising, is it not? This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Was hidden is kind of a polite, passive way of saying it. It means they were too obtuse to see it. It does sound like when it says was hidden, is like God did it, but we, we're not going to go there. It was just they, they didn't understand. They were thinking of the glory of the Messianic kingdom. They could not imagine a crucified Messiah. And this, this attitude made their subsequent preaching of the gospel even more extraordinary than it was. Because before, they were thinking messianic kingdom. Oh, my gosh, Jesus is crucified. We're dead. They go hole up. They're defeated. They're discouraged. They're devastated. And then all of a sudden, they're out there risking their lives preaching the gospel. Why? Because they had seen the risen Lord. You, you see, you catch a vision of the risen Lord, you'll do a lot of stuff that you didn't have the guts to do beforehand. All right, I'm back from my discussion in Mark, uh, which parallels the discussion in Luke 18 of Jesus' prediction of his death. Now, Matthew and Mark, or at least Matthew does, goes on to talk about, I think yeah, both Matthew and Mark go on to talk about James and John at this point, decide they want to be big shots in the kingdom of God. I call that an attempted coup. Luke doesn't talk about it, so we'll skip that, and we'll move on now to the story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus on the Jericho Road. That is discussed also in Mark. And so I'm going to splice in my discussion of the healing of blind Bartimaeus. I'm going to splice in that discussion, and that splice begins now. 
Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 10, I'm going to finish up the chapter going through verses 52 from verse 46. This is the story of blind Bartimaeus and his healing at Jericho. We're in the midst of Jesus' Perean ministry. He's on his way, having gone through Perea, Galilee, Samaria, to Jericho, and he's on his way back to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. So we start with Mark 10. Verses 46 through 52, I'll, I'll use that as we go through and point out to you that we have two parallel passages, one in Matthew 20, verses 29 through 34, and one in Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. So we will start in Mark, and I'm just going to read the whole thing, the whole passage from Mark as a background. Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. They came to Jericho. The they is Jesus and his disciples. And as, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, Mark explains that Bartimaeus is Hebrew for son of Timaeus. Mark often explains Jewish terminology for his Gentile audience. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Many people told him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he's calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up, and ran and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man told him, I want to see. Go your way, Jesus told him. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he could see and began to follow him on the road. Our first task will be, as we attempt to analyze this passage, is to harmonize two discrepancies, alleged or apparent discrepancies, in the synoptic passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark, we see that Jesus and the disciples came to Jericho, and as he went out from Jericho... They saw blind Bartimaeus. Matthew says, as they went out from Jericho, a bunch of people followed him, and they saw two blind men. And then in Luke, it says, as they came into Jericho, they saw blind Bartimaeus. All right, so the two things are this. First of all is, did they heal blind Bartimaeus on the way out from Jericho, as Matthew and Mark say, or did, they, did Jesus heal blind Bartimaeus on the way into Jericho, as it says in Luke? That's the first harmonization problem. The second harmonization problem is Mark and Luke only mention one man. Mark gives him a name, blind Bartimaeus, or Timaeus, Bartimaeus, and Luke just says a blind beggar. But Matthew says there were two blind men who were healed. All right, how do we reconcile this? Actually, it's not as hard as you might think. We'll first start off with the two. Blind Bartimaeus actually was a guy who was a, a, a kind of an aggressive, I shouldn't say aggressive, assertive guy. He throws off his cloak. He's crying, Jesus, 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 have mercy on me, son of David. The other guy probably just was around, was was with blind Bartimaeus, quiet. He was blind, quiet, and not as aggressive as Bartimaeus. And so Mark and Luke just tell the story of blind Bartimaeus being healed, whereas Matthew mentions the fact that his companion was healed also. So that's not a big problem. The f now, the reconciliation of the problems of Mark and Matthew saying that Bartimaeus was healed as Jesus left Jericho, whereas Luke says he was healed as Jesus went into Jericho, that sounds like a difficult problem, and I can hear the skeptics, I can hear the liberal Protestants. 
I can hear the errantists. I can hear them all saying, see there, the Bible's got errors in it. Well, actually, no. The simplest way to, to harmonize this is from an historical fact. Herod built a new city of Jericho. The old city had fallen into disuse, and Herod, the great builder, had built up another city of Jericho, probably to the south of the old city of Jericho. So Matthew and Mark, they're talking about going into the old Jericho when they came, excuse me, going out from the old Jericho when they came to Jericho as he went out from Jericho in Mark 10, verse 46, and in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, as they went out from Jericho, that's the old Jericho. And then in Luke, they met blind Bartimaeus, and then in Luke 18, verse 35, and it came to pass as they drew nigh unto the new Jericho. So blind Bartimaeus was in between the two Jerichos. Blind Bartimaeus is between the old Jericho and the new Jericho. And as Jesus leaves the old Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, he meets blind Bartimaeus, heals him, then he heads on into the new Jericho. It's not a problem at all. There's other ways to reconcile it too. You could say that the request to heal Jesus was on his way in to Jericho. And then as he went out from Jericho, he, he held off on the request to heal until he came out and saw him again and, and healed him on the way out. But I think the old Jericho and new Jericho is the best way to reconcile that. All right, let's look at some other minor differences between the parallel passages. Luke chapter 18, verse 36 says this, and hearing a multitude going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him. So we find out that blind Bartimaeus, the way he knew that Jesus was going by was because of the crowd. There was a bunch of people following Jesus, getting ready to, they were getting ready for Palm Sundays. What they were getting ready for, getting ready to proclaim him as Messiah. And he's saying, what's going on with all this noise? And that's how he found out. Mark has an extra passage. It says, and they call the blind man, saying unto him, be of good cheer, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, sprang up and came to Jesus. So in that little detail, we find out that blind Bartimaeus is a, he he's not intimidated too much by his blindness. He ran to Jesus. He called out to Jesus, and then when he found out Jesus had hurt him, he ran to Jesus. Casting away his garment means he was just in a big hurry. There's another little difference, too. Mark says that Jesus said to the crowd, call blind Bartimaeus to come. And then in Matthew, it says Jesus called. He didn't ask the crowd to call, but Jesus called. And then in Luke, it says Jesus commanded him to be brought unto him. In other words, he commanded the crowd to bring Bartimaeus up in. Well, that just means that Matthew left out that intermediate causal agent. He called them. He called them by asking the crowd to call him. That's no big deal. Now, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke have two significant entries here. They say that Jesus tells blind Bartimaeus after healing him, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Luke says the same thing. Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Matthew doesn't mention it. Well, that's important. We'll talk about the role of faith in this healing as we go through the exposition. And finally, Luke adds this phrase. After the crowd saw that blind Bartimaeus had received a sight, or excuse me, after blind Bartimaeus received a sight, he followed Jesus, glorifying God, and all the people glorified God. When they saw it, they gave praise unto God. So we see the praise that follows from a divine miracle in Luke. So we can profitably look at the parallels here to get the full picture. So let's start out with Mark chapter 10, verse 46, and go through and point out some things. First of all, the town of Jericho, let's say a little bit about it. 
It was, according to my NIV study Bible, about five miles west of the Jordan River and about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, not too far away from Jerusalem. What did Jesus do in Jericho? All of this, of course, is not recorded in Mark. He met Zacchaeus and called him to his ministry. That's the story of the, the short man who climbed a tree in order to see Jesus. You remember that story? He delivered the parable concerning a nobleman going into a far country. And as I mentioned earlier, the old city was largely abandoned in the time of Jesus, the old Jericho. The new Jericho was south of the, of the old Jericho and had been built by Herod the Great. And as I also mentioned, this large crowd that was following Jesus, they were probably going to Jerusalem thinking Jesus was going, was going to set up a temporal kingdom. They're all excited until he got crucified and they kind of disappeared. And then the Pentecost came and they came back again. Now, blind Bartimaeus calls out, have mercy on us, son of David. What is son of David? That is a standard messianic term, which means that blind Bartimaeus knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And you will notice that the crowds told him to keep quiet. But blind Bartimaeus and the other blind man, but blind Bartimaeus probably representing the other man, cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That didn't stop him. Now this shows the faith that this man had. Because he did not let, he's a blind man, and blind men are weak. They have no status. They have no money. They're just weak. They're disabled. And yet he cried out all the more when the people told him, be quiet. Don't bother the Messiah. He's getting ready to set up his messianic kingdom. He's a big shot. He's the king. And who are you? You're just a lousy beggar. You don't have any money. You're begging. You, you can't see. And here you are bothering the great teacher. Now, you would think that was shut somebody up. It might have shut blind Bartimaeus' companion up, but it didn't shut him up. He just kept crying out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, who in the crowd told blind Bartimaeus to keep quiet? Actually, there's a couple of options on this. One is they could have been friends of Jesus who thought that the Messiah shouldn't be bothered by two worthless beggars. Maybe the crowd thought they were asking for alms. They're begging for alms. Do you know how tiresome that can be? you never know whether the almsgivers deserve alms or not. I've learned this in China. I've met so many beggars, and I've been smitten with so much guilt uh, problems when I didn't give them money. Then when I did give them money, you know, you you want you find out later that there's band, bands of beggars going around with beggar pimps, I call them, people who are in charge of these little bands of children going out and begging money. It's just you just don't know what to do. So I'm sure the people were disgusted with all the alm, begging for alms, maybe. They might not have realized it needed to be healed, although I don't know how they could really not think of that because Jesus had done all kinds of healing and they were blind. So that seems like that would be a logical thing they were asking for. Now, if that's true, that shows that these friends of Jesus were pretty callous to be friends of Jesus and not want the guy to go to Jesus to get his eyes healed. Or it could be they just thought he was begging for money, but even then that's callous. It could be that these rebukers who told blind Bartimaeus to keep quiet, it could be they were enemies of Jesus, not friends. They didn't like the people calling him son of David, but that's a messianic title, and they thought Jesus was a fraud, an imposter, a blasphemer, blasphemer, and not a Messiah, and so they got angry and said, shut up, don't call him the son of David. Well, whoever it was, doesn't matter. Blind Bartimaeus kept right on calling. Adam Clark says this, Whenever a soul cries out to Jesus, the world tries to drown him out. Ain't that the truth? Now, the application point of this story of blind Bartimaeus is one that you can get from a lot of stories of Jesus' healing. For example, the Syrophoenician woman, he put her off. He didn't just hop out of the bottle like a genie out of a bottle and say, yeah, I'll heal your demon-possessed daughter. He said, no, nah, you're a Gentile. I came to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, 
not to the Gentiles. So he put her off and made her profess her faith in him and saying, I'm just a dog, feed me the crumbs from your table. You can see this over and over again. Faith becomes because of opposition and trials. Remember when Jesus said, come out and walk on the water. He demanded faith. He demanded action from Peter. Why? Because he was trying to drown him? No, he was trying to build his faith. How about when Philip looked at Jesus and said, and Jesus looked at Philip and said, you know, there's 5,000 people out here in the wilderness. How about go get some bread for them? He knew doggone well Philip couldn't find bread for 5,000 people. In fact, the Greek in John says, testing him. I remember that word because it struck me when I saw it. I said, ah, testing. He tested Philip, testing his faith, trying to make it stronger. And you notice that Jesus asked the blind Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, he said, what do you want me to do for you? Well, you know, I'm sure Jesus knew what Bartimaeus needed. He was blind. <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? You know, Jesus, Jesus is not stupid. He can look at him and see he's blind. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to build his faith. He's trying to get blind Bartimaeus to state, I want you to, re to heal my eyes. I want, I want to see again. By stating what he thought that Jesus could do, that built his faith. And as a result, blind Bartimaeus and the beggar that was with him, they say, Lord, open our eyes, moved with compassion. And remember, this is not just Jesus healing out of rote, healing out of muscle memory, healing because he'd done so much of it before, healing to do signs to point, him, point out that the kingdom of God is coming, all of which is true, of course. But this little phrase, moved with compassion, it was in another healing I just talked about. I can't remember where it was, that one of the synoptic parallels said that the healing was done with compassion. Immediately they could see and followed him. Notice the touching of the eyes there. That communicates to the blind man that Jesus is communicating with him. He didn't spit, on, at least it doesn't record that he spit on the eyes like he did in another healing. And it wasn't like the time when Jesus said, heal the man and he wasn't healed immediately. He saw trees, men as trees walking as his eyesight gradually came into focus. Here it just says immediately they saw. Again, that's, I mean, you know, you can't put, you can't come up with a formula for healing. A lot of them are, are quite different. And as a result of their seeing again, did they run off and say, we can see? No, they followed him. They said, we want to follow you. So they not only saw, they followed Jesus. Now, this healing of blind men's eyes, this is a sign of the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 5, that great chapter in Isaiah, says this, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The blind men might have actually known Isaiah's prophecy, which would encourage their faith, although I sort of doubt that, that being blind and beggars, I, they might not be all that learned in the law. But at any rate, Jesus is, is fulfilling the messianic kingdom. Now, what I just said about their, uh, Jesus is trying to build their faith, this is confirmed in two of the parallel passages in Mark 10:52 and Luke 18:42. Jesus told blind Bartimaeus, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Now, that's the same phrase he said in Matthew 9:29 when he healed two other guys that were blind. He said, let it be done for you according to your faith. Likewise, when the woman with the issue of blood for 12, I think it was 12 years, 15, I can't. The woman with the issue of blood for a long, long time touched him, and Jesus said, let it be done according to your faith. That is sort of a phrase that he constantly said, which shows that faith if you want Jesus to do something, the more you believe in him, the more he does. Now, I know that that is a staple teaching of the hyperfaith message, which is heresy. I know that, but you know, all heretics take truth and they pervert it. The way that the hyperfaith heretics pervert that truth 
is they say, well, you've gotten the more faith you have, the more Jesus will do. And what is faith? Well, it's faith in our faith. And they, and they look at faith as some kind of entity inside their chest. And they say, see, we've got to build that faith up in there. And they don't focus on Jesus. They focus on laws, impersonal laws, and, and, and uh, psychological states, what your psychological state is. How much do I believe? How much do I believe? How much do I feel like I believe? And then, of course, all that internal faith is built up by positive confessions. We never say anything negative. Well, that doctrine is the easiest thing in the world to refute. It's Christian science. It's nonsense. There's lots of positive so-called, how about, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Is that a negative confession? And Jesus healed. I forgot who he healed. That who I think that was the father of the epileptic demon, if I remember correctly. Help my unbelief. That's a negative confession. But Jesus still, he still responded to the man. And, and gave him what he wanted, did a miraculous healing. So it's not faith in our faith or faith in our positive confessions, but it's faith in Jesus and what he can do and what he wants to do. So when Jesus says your faith has healed you, that is a shorthand way of saying your faith in me has healed you. It does not mean faith in your faith and faith in your positive confessions. I had a good friend of mine who used to be in that hyperfaith movement, he, and he told me one time, he says, that is the most heinous doctrine that has ever come out in church history, and I love that word heinous because it's not a word that's used very often, but I said, what a way to describe these people. They are, they're heretics. But remember, all heretics have got a truth, and what happens when they abuse the truth, then you run away from it. So we don't want to run away from faith. It's everywhere in the scriptures. I can say the same thing about prosperity. Prosperity as defined not as getting rich and buying a yacht and an airplane, but prosperity in the sense of success is what the word actually means. That's in the Bible, and I know the prosperity teachers have really screwed that one up to where you almost want to be, go out and preach poverty. The faith people make you want to go out and preach doubt and unbelief, and the prosperity preachers want to make you preach poverty in reaction, but we don't want to react. We don't want to. Martin Luther said the history of, of the world is of a drunk man walking down a corridor, bouncing off of one wall, and then going to the opposite wall and bouncing off of it and coming back to the first wall again, reacting. We don't want to react. We need to act and see what the Scripture says. And over and over again, how about when Peter said, when uh, Jesus said, Peter, get out of the boat and walk? He was testing his faith to make it larger. And although Peter halfway passed the test and halfway failed, Jesus was very gracious. Very gracious. He picked him up, put him back in the boat, but he he called out his faith. And so here these men show that they believe that Jesus was going to heal him. Because they threw off his cape, blind Bartimaeus did. He ran to him. He called out. Son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. And then the crowds told him to shut up, and they just yelled even louder. That's faith. And by the way, another thing you don't do is just to do something to manufacture the faith. The actions that blind Bartimaeus did were a result, a fruit of his faith that he already had. He didn't do the actions, the activities, in order to manufacture the faith in his heart. Ooh, I've done that one before. That's a no-no. That's a bad mistake. One last point before we leave Mark chapter 10 Notice that after blind Bartimaeus was healed, what resulted? He and the crowds gave glory to God. That's what healing does, especially a big miraculous healing like, like that. i never forget the time I saw this young girl who was basically blind. They let her into a room. It was a living room in Sumter, South Carolina. I was in college, height of the charismatic movement, and somebody prayed for her. And I, you know, I, to be honest with you, I didn't have enough faith that that girl could see. And all of a sudden, she starts crying out and saying, I can see, I can see. You don't think that I gave glory to God when I saw that? Yes, sir. Contrast that with the attitude of the crypto-deus cessationist 
who are very good at finding fake healings, but totally blind when true miracles are done right in front of their eyes with credible testimony. They wouldn't see a miracle if it twice bit them in their fanny. All has to do with attitude, my friends. Are we going to glorify God when he does miracles, or are we going to say, nah, he doesn't do miracles today? Choice is yours. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back from my splice now. We're back in Luke 18. We finished verses 31 through 43, and so this audio is now complete. I hope you enjoyed it as we discussed Jesus, excuse me, as we discussed Jesus' prediction of his death in Jerusalem as he goes down from Jericho, and we discussed the healing of blind Bartimaeus on the Jericho Road. I hope you enjoyed this audio. In our next audio, we will discuss Jesus' visit with Zacchaeus, and we'll talk about the parable of the pounds as Jesus sets out for Jerusalem for his crucifixion and resurrection. See you next audio.